Don. How are Dan. you? Merlin. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for coming on. That's a good question. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I would say my biggest net positive. <laughs> would you, what about, have you ever thought of inbox like 70? That's, an, ex- zero. that's, a, that's an excellent question. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Now that I realize it, you've made me realize I think that there's a plurality of inboxes, if I could say. I don't want to be presumptuous. I think every family is different in their own way. It's like Anna Karenina for email. Anyway, that was an excellent question. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I would love to join the team. We um, Can you start Monday? That's an excellent question. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I feel like it's not up to me to decide when I start or finish. Oh. I just want to <laughs> be, I guess I'm thinking I want to be bioavailable for whatever you need. You know, it's like the difference between exposure and dose. I want to be both for you. Both. And let us limit. That's an excellent question. I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. <laughs> Hi, guys. How are you? Good, Merlin. How are you? Oh, doing great. You guys are, uh, you, this is nice of you to, to have me here. Should, you can tell them where we are. Is, it, is that part of the thing? So, so yeah. So we should, we, should, we should explain. So we are, we are recording an episode of Food Safety Talk, which is a podcast uh, that I do with Ben. And we are here at the IAFP annual meeting. That's the International Association for Food Protection annual meeting. And uh, it's here in Portland, Oregon. And we, we have just come from a, a presentation uh, from Merlin Mann on uh, time and priority management. I think I get that right. Was it time and priority management? Close enough. <laughs> Priorityification. It was really about uh, prioritizing your attention and time <laughs> and developing a, a, a sustainable substructure for managing rather than actually completing your most important projects. Because right, I really, so I think if something's important enough, it's probably not worth doing. One, one thing that I got out of today's discussion, the one thing that I would put as number, number one on my priority list now mm-hmm. is... Um, make a lot of lists. Um, just just write just write things down and then file that list away in your mailbox. That's a that's, a, that's a great way to put it. I think I think most of us realize we should be making more lists. I think the problem is that many of us find ourselves returning to the list and doing the tasks on them, oh. which is the wrong way to do it. Anytime you feel like doing something from your list, you probably need to start another list. You need a meta list, right? It needs to be in-band communication, and then you just throw everything away, literally start over, set it on fire, and you just leave for the day. And, and then you reprioritize the next day. And next, yeah, next day come in. Uh, now you're right. That, my, my, my family, uh, I come from a family of list makers. My grandmother was an inveterate uh, list maker. She was just constantly making lists. And at one point she did actually have a list of her lists. And she was constantly doing that. And I think it was just uh, so the, so the you know, intrusive thoughts would not come into her mind. She just made lists. Just, just write it. Just get it out. Just get it out of my mind. Absolutely. Put it down on something. I will, I will deal with that at some other time. Yeah. We, uh, we're very happy to, to have you here with us. We Just to set the stage for the um, dozens of Food Safety Talk podcast listeners um, who, who will be, mo- many whom download the podcast but don't actually listen to it. Well, the stage is we are, we are in a room at the Oregon Convention Center. Don and I are um, currently speaking into his shoe. Literally, uh, as a mic stand, um, Merlin uh, is is here with us. Uh, has a mic stand, uh, which is a little more uh, a little more formal. People would not have been able to really enjoy the conversation without knowing those things. No, and it's it's important. That's a lot of color. And I want to point out, it is my left shoe, um, and also my left foot is a tiny bit cold. <laughs> Great uh, Daniel Day Lewis movie. Right, my left um, shoe. It's yeah, my left shoe is cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we we do we talk about stuff. Um, 
sometimes we talk about music, sometimes we talk about food safety. We rarely have uh, much of a plan, and people seem to, um, I don't know, like that sometimes. Well, sometimes we plan, and some people like the ones where we plan, um, and other people don't. But, but I think today, uh, since we have Merlin here, would be an opportunity to, to literally grill him literally and uniquely grill him hmm. on his food safety knowledge. Oh, make sure and, you check and, my internal temperature. Yeah. Uh, there are probes make here. Sure, <laughs> make sure you get a finger in and make sure it's 160. Because <laughs> this pork ain't going to be cold. I, Don does sometimes share uh, texts that uh, you send him asking questions about food safety as his personal consultant. Yep, yep. And uh, I, I, do, I do enjoy uh, all of that. Um, what... Uh, What's your uh, what's your concern with the food safety of our world? <laughs> that we're ruining delicious foods by cooking them too much, primarily. No, I don't really worry that uh, too much about it. I um, I don't know. I've always heard that um, <laughs> I'm exactly the kind of person who ends up in an emergency room. Let's be honest. But like, I like I like uh, beef and lamb and things like that, kind of rare. I like things like chicken and pork to be kind of medium. And I guess there was a time when we could, you know, uh, eat these sorts of things without facing certain death. There's always been things like steak tartare. So, like, I don't know. We have a balance where I, I uh, you know, in the kinds of foods, I'm a big protein eater and I'm the primary cook in the house. But it, my wife is the judge of whether this has been cooked enough. If there's blood on the plate, she gets unhappy. So so let me, if it's not too personal a question, so mm. so you like things a little more rare, but she's a... She is, she, <laughs> She likes things more common. <laughs> Unfortunately, her standards are high. She prefers it well done. <laughs> but so is this is this a is this a a, a point of contention between you in terms of deciding? Like, I mean, a serious question. Mm -hmm. Like, like if you're the cook, but she's the judge. Is is that is that how do you guys figure out what to do in terms of providing safe food for for you and your family? It's a good question. Um, <laughs> no, it actually is. It actually is because. Um, we both, we both like what we would call a medium rare when it comes to something like steak. My problem is we live in this old house with a really crappy oven, and, it's, and, and I have still not found any kind of uh, thermometer, especially like a remote thermometer, that I'm happy with. They all seem like junk. And so my problem is I hate the idea of spending 40 to $60 on a rib roast and having it come out too well mm -hmm. done because I got some element of it wrong. And, uh, you know, what I'm really starting to appreciate about cooking as – you know, I'm not, I'm not much of a cook. But just, like, how important – there's a little bit of science to it, I guess. And just the idea, like, temperature and how it's applied just makes all the difference in the world. And I'm trying to really get that. So, no, we don't disagree a lot from an aesthetic standpoint and I think slightly from a health standpoint, mostly an aesthetic standpoint. She doesn't like it when the steak's all bloody. I'm fine with that. But, uh, but you know, as we've gotten into more stuff like sous vide, like, it's been really interesting. Like, I had a really – for example, here's one example. I've been experimenting a lot with sous vide. Have, do, you, do we listeners know what that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they will. Uh, sous vide is French for under vacuum. I think we have uh, we have an episode with that literally that title. Yep. You cook so, in a yes. you cook in a water bath at a very specific temperature, mm -hmm. and it's completely magical the way that this works. But for example, uh, I finally got really got sous vide. Like sous vide is so mysterious to me because how is it that I could cook this thing, this beef, no matter what size it is? Like let's say you put a ribeye in in sous vide at 129 degrees for two hours. Mm -hmm. How is it that it's not more done than it was after one hour? And how is it that even three hours, it's not substantially 
different. That's really weird to get my head around. Mm. Well, and, and we, we, we talked about this the other day, and, I, and actually I was thinking about this because I wanted to have a good answer to your question. And so I think this is an, actually an opportunity to, to talk about something that is, that's really important and, and interesting to our audience, and that is kinetics, right? Oh, oh okay, can, I want to hear this, but can I tell you my disaster story? Please. Here's my disaster story that made me get the magic that I hadn't understood before. I'm not saying I scientifically get it, but but uh, I heard a lot about sous vide eggs, and I heard about how great it was. You can get really good, like, soft to medium to hard-boiled right. eggs with a great amount of, of specificity. But here's what I did wrong. I got it backwards. Instead of doing it at a fairly high temperature for a fairly short amount of time, kind of the classic way, I did it at a too low temperature for a long period of time, and I had the I got the opposite of a hard-boiled egg. I don't know. You guys maybe could tell me. Maybe this is kinetics. But here's what happened. When I cooked, cooked these freaking eggs for an hour. I took them out, and guess what? The yolks what? were, like, at least medium, and the, no, uh, the, the whites I... were still, like, congealed. And I was like, oh. I had this kind of like, oh, I see. I have to think very differently about how I'm doing this now. Is that kinetics? Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and, in fact, there is a technology for in-shell pasteurization of eggs. And the trick with in-shell – and so what you get at the end of the day is you get a, a carton full of eggs that are salmonella-free or virtually salmonella-free that are still raw. And, and the, it's all about time and temperature. And so bacteria are killed in response to time and temperature. And so you can go very, very hot for a short amount of time by long time. And the kinetics for coagulation of egg white and egg yolk are different than the kinetics for destruction of bacteria. And so by playing oh, with where you are okay. on that, uh, you can actually cause the bacteria We're to We're used die. to thinking that as one vector. Right. Like heat does all of that, and you're right. saying it's, it's, it's different. It's both, yeah. Right. Like the, uh. the relative reaction rates for those two things are different. And so the trick is you can play with where you are on that time temperature space and get different effects. So you can get a lot of salmonella kill and not much coagulation of egg, or vice versa, you can get a lot of coagulation of egg and relatively speaking less salmonella kill. But, but again, the, the bottom line is if you're, if you're cooking eggs in your kitchen, you're probably going to get both. But, but by, by separating time and temperature and finally wow. controlling them, you can, you can actually get one versus the other. Yeah, and, the, you know, for, for us, we, we talk about stuff in log reductions. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of bacteria, and we're trying to take it down by factors of 10. So the time-temperature combination to uh, take salmonella out in roast beef, for instance, or, you know, a prime rib. So you go 130 degrees Fahrenheit, 112 minutes. That's the same kill as 165. You sent me a graph about this. Yeah, 160 okay, degrees okay. at zero seconds. Like it, that, that doesn't matter. That's so, so, so you, strange. Like, it is, and it's and it's not like you know we we see it in the stuff that we do, and even you know in the restaurant industry, and we we all you know there's a food code, and people have to follow this you know these rules, but they are only the one for the most part, this endpoint temperature, that's the ultimate goal. So all those things that you see on menus that say if you're eating undercooked eggs or beef, it's all about just the one we got to a hot enough temperature at zero se seconds where the science would dictate, well, you don't really need that. It's both. We could back it up, make it lower for a longer amount of time. Same same objective, same, you know, same, same final issue of... But 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 that but that ends up 
that ends up being a very confusing message Absolutely. for the consumer and honestly for a lot of people that work in restaurants, which is why we moved to endpoint temperatures, which says basically cook this burger to 155 degrees Fahrenheit and you'll be fine. Yes, you could theoretically cook it to 135 for 15 minutes and you know, don't, I'm just making those numbers up, don't quote yep. me on that, but that, that's, and that's what you're doing yep. when you're doing sous vide, right? Mm -hmm. But I wanna hear more about your sous vide setup and, and how, like where, where did you, well, how did you, I mean you're a smart guy, you can look stuff on the, on the internet, how did you figure out like what the right thing to do was and how did you, and how comfortable do you feel about, about that information? From a food safety standpoint? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, there actually is a lot of, there's a fair amount of very um, intelligent and useful and actually kind of pretty sites about this stuff. It's really weird. It isn't like the old days. There's a lot of what feels like pretty good information about this. But like I said, not to repeat myself, uh, you know, ad nauseum, but, you know, as you, the more you guys talk about this, the more interesting it is to me. Because let's say, you, you know, you take something like, Okay, so meat and time, <laughs> yeah. title. But you've got two hours of meat sitting on the counter at 85 degrees. Not such a great thing, you know? Two hours in the oven at 500 degrees, not such a great thing. But two hours in this water bath at 129 degrees, Awesome. Amazing. But like it's like that's if you think about like, you know, that that's that's so hard to get our brain around. So when you talk about the endpoint temperature, that's out there because it's easy to crock. Exactly. Absolutely. You don't have to take into account what the relationship of this right. to that. Exactly. Okay. And it and it ends up I and mean, it's not just like people that are newly introduced to this that it blows their minds. I mean, we work with health inspectors that I, you know, a couple of weeks ago I, I put on a workshop where I have a emergent circulator and I show them about sous vide because they're it's it's something that they're they don't see it, you know, at Applebee's, but they see it in some of the restaurants that, that they're inspecting. They're not familiar with it. And I, you know, I cook an egg in the shell uh, and give them, show them what it looks like. And it looks to them very um, undercooked, like visually. But if I show them the time temperature profile, it is by the definition of the, you know, of the, of science, it is cooked and it just blows their mind. Like it just. Well, it, it defies, it defies explanation. Cause I mean the entire, and I'm, again, I'm now I'm repeating myself, but if you think about like, and the example I was explaining, I think to, to Dan or John Roderick on, on one of the shows was it, it defies your entire understanding of how this works. Let's say you set your oven at home on uh, the classic white man's temperature, 350 degrees, right? That's what every man cooks at. That's all we. That's all I know. 350 and broil is all I got. You do it at 350. You cook that for one minute. That's not going to be enough. You know, you cook it for five minutes. That's not going to be enough. You cook it for an hour. Might be fine. Yeah. You cook it for five hours. That's going to be super burnt. So it's so strange to me that when I when I do the vacuum bag and I put this in the water and I put the steak in at 129 degrees, like it's pretty much ready in an hour. But after two hours, it's still just as ready and not really different. I am told that with a steak in particular, you don't want to overdo it because I guess it gets kind of mealy. But mm -hmm. you could have that in for four hours. Talking to the pro people, talking to like my friend Max Temkin, he has told me these things he does. You can do it for 24 hours as long as it's sealed right to keep the air out. So, I mean, that has been, in, in reading these sites and trying to learn more, it has mainly been trying to unhook my mind from this idea of this single endpoint yeah. thing. Um, no, but like, and, and now I, I think I'm starting to get it. And it's... But it is still kind of a dark art because there's like all the things that I thought I knew 
you know, uh, aren't mattering as much. Well, but I want to come back to, like, the sites that you're looking at. And, like, so one site says this time and this temperature, and another site says this other time and maybe the same temperature. How do you decide, like, what's right, and how do you judge the quality of those sites? I couldn't at first. And I think eggs are a good example of that because, I mean, like with any recipe at first when you're an amateur or a novice, you don't follow it. You follow the, the recipe, you know, to the letter because you don't, you know, you don't know what could go wrong by changing any one aspect of it. I didn't know which ones to pick, um, but then I guess I tried some. I have not had anything disastrous happen yet, you know. And I did learn that, you know, there are certain temperatures that seem widely agreed upon for certain kinds of foods. But now I think the art for me is going to be in figuring out, like, okay, like, Here's the, plain, here's the plain fact. You can throw some meat in a bag and cook it, and it'll be fine. You sear it. With, you don't even have to season it is the weird part. And then, again, anti-patterns, anti-patterns. Like, it, it, there are certain kinds of oil that do very poorly over a long time, right. and it can actually affect the taste right. of the meat. That seems crazy to me. Right. So I tend to do very minimal seasoning. I throw it in. Then I do all the dirty work on the, uh, uh, on the searing part. Yep. I'm not answering your question. I did not have a way of really knowing. The only thing I had was aesthetics. Going to sites, like I started with, I have an Enova is the name brand of my sous vide. And then I discovered some websites that looked really pretty and put together, and the recipes seemed very well thought out. And like I say, I haven't had a disaster yet. It seems kind of idiot-proof if you've got the time to think ahead. But I don't know. It's made me more ambitious, and it's, and it's made me think a lot more about like what I've taken for granted in the past about how food works. Do you, with, um, with your ANOVA, does it have a vacuum sealer with it, or did you have to get that? Nope. So, how are you, so what are you doing? Water displacement method. Okay. He said, as though yeah, he had invented, like, okay. as though he had invented and, the idea. And as we look at you knowingly, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Obviously say no you, more. Uh, gentlemen are not familiar with the water displacement method. <laughs> no, you put the meat in a bag, and you put drop it into the water. So what I'll do is I'll, I'm <laughs> indicating with my fingers what I do here. Close the bag all but a little bit, and then you drop it in, and the water displaces all the air out of the bag. You make sure it's all out. You seal it. And, that, yeah. and, I mean, a lot of people I know, some people I know have got the ceiling stuff, but a lot of people I know are like, no, 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 that's for suckers. Get a good quality Ziploc bag and you'll be fine. And, again, I haven't had a single problem okay. yet. Um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff. It huh? is. It's fascinating to us. It, it, and for our audience, Merlin. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So, so, clearly, I, I have come to the realization in the last five minutes that I am the guy in the room that knows the least about sous vide. So I want you to tell me. I mean, I understand all the kinetics and stuff, but, but the actual practice. You well, guys, duh. We all understand the kinetics, Don. <laughs> <laughs> We're not children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> please tell so How do you decide? Um, like, where do you get your bags? And, and, and you know, I mean... Bag hacks. Because I want to hear my history. It's a short history. Yeah, a very I, I, short I really history. do. I really do. It's only got, like, two or three chapters. Number one is I watch... You don't curse on here. I watch a lot of Top Chef. And on Top Chef, uh, people are always doing things with sous vide. I never understood what the point of it was. I never got it. I'm a big Richard Blaze fan. He's one of my favorite chefs on Top Chef. Uh, and he would do a lot of molecular gastronomy and all this wackadoodle stuff. But uh, and I was like, it never really registered. You know what it really was? In the last few months, uh, Andy Notko had started writing about his experience with this Anova sous vide one. For some reason, it grabbed my attention. But I saw the results of what he was cooking. He's like, tonight I will try this sirloin steak. Tonight I will make this pork chop. He would put up these photos, and I would go, holy crap, that's exactly what I want to make, and I'm finding incredibly difficult. So I added it to my Amazon wish list, and I thought, what the heck, you never know. And my wife and daughter bought it for me for Father's Day. So that's how I got started. And then what I have learned very quickly is, like, it's a total no-brainer for for proteins, for meat, essentially. It's been great for fish. So what have I done? I've done tons of different kinds of beef, big-ass pork chops. Uh, I've done, um, what kind of? 
oh, I've done, I've done skirt steak in there. That was surprisingly good. Um, but the, the advice that I received that seems really sensible is that it's not so great for vegetables for reasons that you guys might be able to explain. Why is it that vegetables are so great in the slow cooker? It seems like, logically, it seems like it should be the same thing. I'll make a big-ass corned beef in the slow cooker with vegetables, and it turns out great. But they don't, they don't go so much here. So anyway, it's mainly been a thing I use to make different kinds of proteins. You finish it off, searing it on the grill, and I haven't looked back. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer to the to the vegetables. It I might think be... it's the kind of the way that it's made up protein versus uh, the carbohydrates. Well, well I, I wanted to ask. So in your so you have tried vegetables? Not really. Everything okay. I read said. So, like, you ever notice how weird it is? You take a let's take a again. This is just shows you what a dummy I am. Let's say you take half a pound of broccoli uh, florets versus half a pound of carrots versus half a pound of asparagus. And those are all things that I'm happy to throw in a bowl with a little yep. bit of water and put in the microwave. But what's weird, the asparagus, maybe two minutes. Broccoli, maybe two minutes. Those carrots kind of want four minutes because they're more sinewy, they're more dense. I'm not sure exactly, mm-hmm. again, how that works. But like, I'm guessing it must have something to do with that density and the way a protein breaks down versus the way – because with a protein, you're breaking down the – it's turning the like, sinews into gelatin and stuff like that. Is that right? Right. And, and, and with, with vegetables, it's, it's probably cellulose and simple sugars and starches. And the other thing, too, is that every vegetable is going to be different. And, yeah, and so and – and to come back to your slow cooker example, you take that – big piece of meat and a bunch of vegetables and it's all kind of simmering together and uh you know the 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 water is leaching out of the meat and the juices from the meat and you know it's all working together in a way that people that have developed these slow cooker recipes know about well in in a way sous vide is more like like a like a laser like a highly focused tool that you can just aim it at this thing or aim it at that thing right and it's not really good in the way that let's say a slow cooker is for cooking a whole big thing together mm-hmm. because it's 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 too precise right and it really doesn't lend itself well to let's say a, a mixture of things that are going to cook at different rates and that's and so interesting but it's also weird like if it's not obvious yet i think sous vide is magic and i don't understand it how is it that you can put in such a giant piece of protein, animal protein, and you just cook it a little bit longer, and it's fine, and it never overcooks. I did this the other day. The first time this blew my mind was with really thick uh, sirloin pork chops. Mm. They were probably an inch and a half thick, and I was like, how is this happening? And I asked my friend Max. He's like, I was like, did you cook like a roast? He's like, oh, you can totally cook a roast. You just get a really, you can get like a five-gallon bucket mm-hmm. and cook it like for like up to like eight hours or something yeah, like or t- that. I, like you said, 24 hours. There's, uh, there, do you, so, you, like, Ben, do you do sous vide? Yeah, I, I, I don't at home. I have just recently purchased one professionally, mm-hmm. um, really to teach health inspectors and restaurant folks how to use it safely and how to develop plans around it. From are there any rules safety. of thumb that you share? I mean, obviously, there's there probably a curriculum, but are there any rules of thumb that you tell people when they're doing sous vide that helps take the complexity and make it more grokkable? Really, for me, on the safety standpoint, is I start with that um, FSIS document that Don sent you and said, look, as long as, yeah, as long as you stay within these parameters, this is your playground. You can mess around with stuff as long as it's here. And what we what I've found um, in the professional chef world is th- they're they're okay with that, but they're like, well, what if I did it a little differently? What if I moved below? So like, what if I tried to cook this massive piece of uh, of meat at um, 117 degrees? And so mm-hmm. so we do a lot of like so I you know I bought one so we could do some experiments um, and then have gone back and forth. And one of the guys who I you know started this conversation with told me he said. I learned why I can't do that, um, not from a safety standpoint. It was from a spoilage standpoint. 
So uh, cooking, um, he, especially if it's not sealed in the bag well, right? It, no, they're using fully sealed. Vac- really? Yeah, okay. they vac that in the in in the sort of chef world, they're they're very much trying to make sure that they're keeping out all those juices in there. They're really driving out the the oxygen as much as possible. But what he said was, if I left it in there at 117 for 48 hours, which is what he what he did, what? I'm gonna yeah, which is for the same reason. He's like, I'm gonna do it really really low. Um, the spoilage microorganisms, not the pathogens, although the pathogens could grow, started to give him really bad off flavors, um, and um, and he's like, so so it didn't kill. What kind of what it, kind of meat was it? Um, it was a like a, like beef, a pork shoulder. I, was, or I think a... it was beef rib. He was doing. Oh. Yeah, he was doing. But is there, a, is there a cutoff point in the same way that you've got your nexus of time versus temperature? Is there a cutoff point where you see diminishing returns on different kinds of cuts? It seems like, you know, I could see, like, for example, like what I mentioned pork shoulder. Yeah. Like that's one or corned beef. I make corned beef over 10 hours in the slow cooker, mm-hmm. and it makes a huge difference. But, like, is there a point of diminishing returns where you're, like, it's, you're getting so – you're not getting that much extra added, like, tenderness? I, I would, Yeah, I, I would say the, there for sure is. Well, and, and keep in mind, too, you're trading – like, at a certain – so if, if at really high temperatures, you're getting a fast cook. At lower temperatures, you're getting a slower cook. At some point, you cross the transition from inactivation of organisms. You're into botulism to, country. To, yeah, to <laughs> growth or, 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 or probably or just spoilage. spoilage. And, and again, a key point is that there are bacteria that like oxygen, but there are also bacteria that grow without oxygen. Botulism I'm going to call them anaerobic. You, it's like you almost. It's like you went to college or yeah. something. You got hydrogen. You got helium. <laughs> and, ber- and, beryllium. And the anaerobics. <laughs> and the anaerobics. Yeah. You got this guy over here. Um, but but the other point that I want to make too, which is which gets into risk and, and Clostridium perfringens risk a little bit. And oh, that excuse is, me. Say that again. <laughs> Gazoontite. That was awesome. Say it again. Clostridium perfringens. <laughs> mm. Salmonella. Campylobacter. Mm. Staphylococcus aureus. Shigella? Escherichia coli. Sounds, those are selling sex tricks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's tantric. I got this, uh, I put this chick on me and I gave her some C. diff. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's an invasive organism. She knows, she knows, she knows. Uh, I want to I talk about, though, that. <laughs> you yeah. call it botulism, yeah. I call it basic spoilage. <laughs> hey. Anyway, hey, hey, forget about hey. it. Who did we not offend? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you got so, your uh, Clostridium so, so, ber- 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 beryllium phytus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. um, you know, one of the things that I think helps with respect to to sous vide is that most of the time, it sounds like what you're doing is you are cooking um, whole cuts of meat, right? And so what you want to do there yeah. is that you are you're killing the bacteria on the surface when most of the bacteria are on the surface. It's it's a it's a whole intact piece of meat, so the inside is probably sterile. Now, if you ha- are hmm. we're trying to do like let's say, I don't know, cook a boatload of hamburger, well, now in the middle of that, you've got because it's ground meat, in the middle of that you've got bacteria. Oh, a whole cut of meat. I get it. Right, whole cut of meat there on the outside. So so you're killing the bacteria on the outside, the heat is penetrating to the middle to cook the meat. If you have a, a ground meat, now you are incubating the middle of that, right? <laughs> and and Clostridium perfringens Love is, is an organism. I get that, it. That grows. You're helping them out. You're, 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 you're incub- exactly. like you say, incubating yeah. them. Exactly oh, my right. God. Exactly right. And so by the time... I'm you, never eating again. This well, is horrible. Well, as, That's the biggest as, risk. As, as, our, as our friend Dean, Dean Cliver, who's since passed away, said, the risks of not... And I mentioned on the podcast on a regular basis... The risks of not eating still outweigh the risks of eating. So keep eating because otherwise yeah, you're Yeah, if he's so smart, how come he's so dead? Yep. 
Clostridium. <laughs> Am I right? Oh, this is fascinating and super duper weird. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, they, so you guys, this is really dumb. Why am I going to mention this to you guys? Did you ever read that Harold McGee book? On food and cooking? I, I, heard, I heard you give a shout-out on Back to Work the other day. Yeah, fantastic book. Really great food writer. Talks about the science. It's, a guy, it's a guy who talks about the science of food and the science of cooking in a very layperson-friendly way. Uh, you will sometimes hear him on public radio. Sometimes around Thanksgiving and Christmas, you'll hear him on Fresh Air talking about he's got this great way of making. Did you ever hear his turkey method? No. His turkey method is great. You um, Basically, you let it thaw, but you ice the white meat, because he's like, the basic problem with turkey is you cook it in usually an oven where the heat's coming down. You're way overcooking the white meat, which wants to be slightly undercooked, while you're undercooking the dark meat, which tastes better when you cook it more. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is what the, if you like, if, <laughs> okay, here's the thing, here's your test. If what you just heard makes you want to kill yourself, this book is not for you. If you find that fascinating, if you want to know why muscle tastes good, like here's, here's the book for you. And it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, great, 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 great food writer. Good, good, good recommendation. We'll link to that in the show notes. You tell me about something you like. <laughs> I do. We don't have we're, we don't have sponsors on the podcast, but I want I do want to talk about a product that we've talked about before. <laughs> tell me Wait. about it, Don. What is you're thinking about? Hang on a second. Do we have a sponsor now? <laughs> we might. Um, have you you talked about uh, uh, time and temperature monitoring more stuff in the oven? Have you tried the eye grill? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, Don. How many times has this happened to you? You don't want to die, but you have some beef you want to put into your face mouth hole. Have you tried the eye grill? <laughs> Throw away the e-grill. You don't need the apple grill. Go straight to the eye grill. Um, no, no, I haven't tried the eye grill. What is that? <laughs> Basically, I, almost every every thermometer I've bought is a piece of human excrement. Oh. I bought ones. I bought. I have these remote ones, and yeah. just keeps going. Ugh, right. Your food is ready. Your food is ready. No, my food's not ready. You're just confused because for some reason, if the cable gets kinks, it automatically doubles the temperature, and I don't know why. Mm. So no, I don't. What's the eye grill? Well, it probably has the same problem as whatever it was you were using. But your, it, food it, it is is <laughs> your food is ready. It is, it your is food is ready. Your food is almost ready. <laughs> it's what we have fair, fairly good success with, with cooking uh, steaks in our backyard uh, grill on. And it's just basically a, it's a Bluetooth grill. Uh, it's got <laughs> spit take. Uh, it, it, it's got uh, uh, two probes, uh, so you can do two steaks at once, and it, it syncs to your iPhone or your iPad. It, it, work, it works pretty well for us. What is it? It's it's just a, a monitor. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, okay. a, it's a probe. It's, a, it's got a probe. Well, I want like a crate and barrel one. I we I got one that was a, a gift, and so I mean, but then also like, how do you deal with the whole thing? Okay, you know what, you guys, you guys are boffins. Help me out with this. Where the f do you put the thermometer properly? Because I feel like if I go, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You might have heard me mention this to my friend John Roderick. Here's my tip for every man who thinks he can cook: quit playing with it. Don't play with the food. Don't prod the food. Don't poke the food. Don't flip the food. Don't scoot the food. Leave the food alone. But you do want to check the temperature at a certain point. So I take the dingus, I push it in, and then, you know, one of my stupid thermometers will say that it's 250, and right. another one will say that it's like 90 or whatever. But is there, you just put it right into the deepest spot that's not touching a bone. Exactly right. Yeah. You but, know what I mean? But, yeah. <laughs> and then you give her the clostridium uh -huh. bifurclotus. You give her a little yeah. clostridium bifurclotus? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. She'll be back for the C. diff. She but can taste the C. diff. Here's the here's the the thing with that. That's that's what you're doing in, in your roasting. But to blow your mind, maybe um, you're gonna get a massive difference, maybe 20 degrees difference, depending on the size, how right. you're cooking it. I mean, even in a burger, just a straight up meat patty, we'll see on cooking studies 15 degrees difference. It was all sitting on the same grill for the same amount of time because there's all this like 
variation. You got what the fat content is. It's not homogenized. A whole bunch of different stuff. Right. So you got to do it multiple times. Now Ugh. it gives you the indication. It's no good. You're I, poking I, it. You're poking yeah, it. You got to do it a few times, depending on what it is. But what you're trying to do with a steak or uh, I'm talking mostly about a roast. A roast, yeah. We, then that's a place where I can throw it in there. I can let it, you know, ride for a long time to make sure it gets to the spot where I want it to be. Then I'm going to go to a couple other spots. The thing with the eye grill that's really nice on roast is it lets you do the time temperature thing a lot better because you can track the, them, the profile. Like. Well, and you can see it's, you know, the ones where you're just looking for endpoint temperature. I use this thing, uh, Don's uh, heard me talk about it. I like just like a, a probe, Co Comark PDT 300, straight up pen kind of. So you use the PDT 200? The, uh, it's the 300. Three, yeah. Okay, so that's the problem. The, P, that's, the 200 is a piece the of The 200, it's exactly. Throw it away. Yeah. The, the 300 is 100 better. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Let me write that down. Every, I mean, when they update them, every extra 100, I mean, you know that the odd number 100s are so bad. So, like operating systems. Yeah, right. Exactly. Or something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, with, you know, the, 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 the eye grill gives you this, like, track. You can see over time. You can just go into your app and be like, oh, I know that I'm going to set it for... 122 degrees and I need it to be there for 15 minutes for whatever quality I want so it's it's giving me that you know that information cool. so I think for roast that's that's a way better tool than, well, than what I use them yeah for. and and when we do steaks it's like we know from experience that if we cook that steak to 130 and turn the heat off there's going to be that carryover cooking and we just let it sit on the plate or on the grill and it's it's fine it comes out great every time I mean mm -hmm. again and it, and it's little with a steak, you can be mm. a little... It's not the same as a burger. Like With a burger, I want every single point to be to the point where if there were a whole bunch of E. coli at that point, they would have died, right? Whereas with a steak, I know probably, unless it's blade tenderized, and we can talk about that again if you want. Um, <laughs> like a jacquard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah which, yeah, we should, we should come I own a jacquard. I own enjoy a jacquard. <laughs> Is that what it's called? Yeah. The little yeah. tiny knives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't totally look at me like I'm a monkey. But, 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 They're fantastic. But, but, but here's the thing. There's a difference between you jacarding your own meat mm -hmm. and <laughs> buying meat that's been jacarded <laughs> by somebody oh, else. Oh, pre-jacarded. Yeah. yeah. You, you, yeah. Or you don't by want a that. stranger. A third-party jacard. So that seems like that would be a lot of extra opportunities for critters to get in there. Well, all those little holes. Yeah, I mean, it pushes them down. So it's on the outside. What we, like we were talking about with Rose, we're worried about surface contamination. You take your jacquard, you jacquard it, you push what's on the outside, inside. Now I take, oh, now, yes. now I take my steak that I could have cooked, like I like, to 120. Yeah. Um, and I can't do that anymore. Now I've got, and the science on this is, is kind of complicated. I You're creating get, so much more surface area I, and moving what's right. on the previous surface area inside. So what I need you're hamburgerizing do, it. Yeah, you're hamburgerizing it, but it's not the same. So for hamburger, I need to cook it to like 155 for 15 seconds. Once I jacquard it, and it depends on how far I put it in, um, mm. I need to now cook it to 145, and I got to flip it twice. So try and put that on a label for somebody or put right, it in right, the right, right, like right. That's the and, and jacquarding is we, we're doing a project on this right now. It's it's a lot more common than, it, like, pre-jacarded stuff. It's a lot more common than even sort of we've known looking at it. We've been working with um, smaller, independent, ethnic meat markets, and there's jacarding going on pretty often, and also something called vacuum tumbling, which is taking a marinade and really doing the pulling a vacuum like you would sous vide, and it draws... It, oh, so it lets you marinate it faster. Yeah, yeah and it, it basically tears holes into the meat a little bit as the vacuum gets pulled, hmm. so that marinade goes inside. So I you're see. you're mechanically 
altering the the outside of it. It's a and super soaker for me. It is. It, yeah. Yeah. And and one of the things that that was a, a mind blowing realization for a lot of folks a sev several years ago at the conference for food protection, it became clear that this process of mechanical tenderization was way more widespread. And there were no regulations. So if you were a restaurant and you were buying steaks, chances are that a significant portion of those steaks were mechanically tenderized, and there was no requirement for a label to inform the restaurant of this. Now, fortunately, USDA Food Safety Inspection Service has become aware of this through the conference and has, I, I think the regulation is out there, but for many years, and we had outbreaks, right? We, we had people getting mm -hmm. sick from mechanically tenderized meat that was being undercooked. And, yeah. and, and so, yeah, and so the, I guess the good news is, is that eventually the food safety system finds the problem and corrects it. But in the, in the short run, um, you know, it's, you know, laws and sausages, right? You don't, you don't want to know, always know the mm -hmm. way, especially, and laws about sausages, you don't want to know the way your food <laughs> is being regulated. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's not optimal. It's getting better, yeah. but it's, it's still not optimal. But it changed, I mean, it's like, like we were, you know, you were saying, it changes that product, right? Like, now I'm not just dealing with a steak. I'm dealing with kind of a hamburgerized steak. Well, it's not what you thought it was going to be. So, can I ask a question? Yeah. Like, um, wait. I'm really glad you asked that question. Uh huh. <laughs> How do you see yourself fitting in? Uh, no, here's the question: Is like so hamburger? You guys, hamburger seems to be kind of an asterisk, or, or like it keeps kind of keeps coming up as this like super dangerous thing. Is that a combination of the different cows issue, the grinding issue? Like, what what are just a couple of the bullet points that should terrify me about hamburger? Because I must tell you, my wife, whom I love, is getting much pickier about hamburger, and I'm starting to think she's kind of making sense. Because it seems like there's more opportunities for stuff to go horribly wrong with hamburger. Well, so first of all, let's let's broaden it a little bit and let's say ground Sorry, meat. Ground, Any, ground, ground meat. Ground meat. Yeah. Yeah. Now there is, there, the, but there also is the specific issue of E. coli 0157H7 or or the shigatoxigenic E. coli in ground beef. Like that's mm -hmm. that's that's a concern, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that is because of the the way the industry works. And again, props to the industry; they have done, especially some of the the, the big companies, you know, the the car of the world have really done a tremendous job of getting better at managing the issue. But, but the nature of the, the process by which the meat that goes into hamburger is made means that it is likely to be contaminated with uh, shigatoxigenic E. coli. And so that means that you've got to pay extra care and attention. So there's, this is not an overabundance of caution. There's a good reason to do that. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. It's, yeah, it's like, should you wear your seatbelt today? Well, you know, you didn't get in an accident yesterday. You're probably right. not going to get in an accident today. But my God, if you're in an accident, you sure as hell want to be wearing your seatbelt. It's like pro most of the burgers that you eat most of the time are mostly 100% But you're coli. making me feel like the way that I feel like I've been trained to feel about pork and chicken, which is like there's probably a bullet in the chamber with, with, with something like chicken especially, right? Well, you know, there's a bullet There's a bullet in, in one in every uh, hundred chambers, right? So well, are you going to check the gun each time? I sure hope so, right? You know, are you going to attempt mm -hmm. it? Are you going to properly cook it each time? Well, I hope so, right? Because it's too big a risk to take otherwise. So, so again, not that you couldn't escape risk, but, right. but there's a risk, and you should manage that risk is what it boils down to. Well, and, and it, each of those, I mean, going with our bullet in the chamber analogy, the bullets are different for pork, chicken, ground beef. And pork, I mean... Is that trichinosis? So we, they, it used to be. I mean, go back uh, 110 years, trichinosis was huge in, in the U.S. And we haven't had a case... Well, we, we have about 
what, 10 cases a year now? And hmm. it used to be hundreds of thousands of wow. cases. Wow, wow, wow. Um, and it had to do with the industry eradicating it or essentially eradicating it from the pork, um, from pork products. And so this is a case where science moved and changed. So we, we used to recommend endpoint temperatures for pork, cook your pork to 160 degrees, I think it was, or 165. And then the pork industry, like over a 15-year period, said, look, we got rid of the problem one here at 160. We're really only worried about salmonella now on the outside. And if we are worried about that, so the bullet changed. What's salmonella, like 150? One, 145. 145. So, for, for so you could get a medium, yeah, it, a for, more medium, like juicy yeah, for, pork chop. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And, and so, but the, so the bullets change and the science around those bullets changes. And, and so we have, I mean, we have a system to update it, but often it's not too often where it goes down like it usually would go up. Like we were finding that, oh, there's some heat resistance here. Mm -hmm. This is one that really like... And better better safe than sorry. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. and, and no, no regulator ever got punished for making the standards stricter. But the problem is you reach a point mm. where the science is clearly indicating that the standards should be less strict. And so how do you find a food safety policy person with the with the cojones to, to say we're gonna make we're gonna lower the cooking requirements on this because the science supports it. But if we're gonna have science based regulations, we have to be prepared to do it. So yeah. we, we talked a little bit about that we're uh, that I'm from Canada and Canada looks at chicken differently. Same I mean chicken production in Canada and chicken pro production in the US is relatively the same. But the recommended endpoint temperature for cooking whole chicken products in Canada is 180 degrees Fahrenheit. In Whoa. the U.S., it's 165. And 180. Yeah, and they would, and it's, and they stand by it. There's, uh, they, they, it's been challenged multiple times. They cite one small study that showed some leftover salmonella after cooking uh, whole birds, and it was, I won't get it all right, but it was like 16. You know, we're not doing a large scale study. It's like we're gonna, you know, put salmonella on sixteen bird carcasses, and we had three of them that weren't killed below one seventy nine. Okay. So we're sticking with one eighty. Where the U.S. Um, has looked at very in vast amounts and very similar. That's more like a data. not a case study, but uh, it's a it's smaller than like a, a giant longitudinal study. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's it's not anecdotal, but it's closer yeah. to that, where the U.S. has kind of said, look, we don't, we're not buying that. We're going to go with 165. Well, and to make things even more confusing, the U.S. regulations for poultry used to be 180, right? Yeah. Or not, yeah. not regulations. The Sorry. Yeah, recommended. recommendations. The advice to consumers yeah. used to be 180 because Americans, consumers, if you cook a chicken to 165, an American will say that chicken is not done, right? And so, and, and, and so finally, we got the USDA people that give advice to consumers to realize that, you know, it doesn't do anyone a service to tell them that you're cooking it to 180 for safety. If you want to tell them cook it to 180 for quality, that's fine. But tell them it's 165 for safety because then when you tell them it's 165 for safety for something else, they won't look at you like, this is crazy. Why, why are these, why do these numbers not match? So yeah, anyway, turns out it's, turns out it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just another one of our inboxes. Mm. <laughs> No, but I, I, it's you can see the clash of these different kinds of. When you're talking about public safety and wanting it to be simple enough, it's sort of like a conversation I had with John Roderick on our show. Or was it John or who was I talking to? 
maybe John Syracuse. We're talking about like how do you tell your kid like don't talk to strangers? Yeah. Like it's a very strange thing because like if you actually that's actually not a great rule because what if your kid gets lost? Should they just wander around on their own until they find a job? No, you want them to talk to a stranger who's a police officer or a target person in a red shirt. Yeah. It's funny though because you have to have stuff be simple enough that there's credibility. A combination of safety and credibility. Because, like you're saying, if we say, well, wait a minute, how come I can eat this steak at 140, but I gotta have my pork be 180? Like, what were you talking about? Different target pathogens? You're talking about, like, yeah. It's so, yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and, but what, what's, a, what's kind of a, you know, amazing um, is how, you know, something like sous vide, where it's not something that, has readily been available to everyone in their home kitchen, but there's a, there's an interest in, in it because it has a lot of different quality attributes to it mm-hmm. because we know a lot more about the science of it. You know, like it's much more precise. So it's so it's like we're I think we're constantly walking this line of um, we want it to be simple, but we also want to give the advice to people who don't want it simple to make so they have flexibility and that gains credibility because if so if we just said um you know sous vide yeah it's great you can do it in a restaurant but you're not a restaurant so always cook your meat to 160 mm-hmm. that turns people off as well so it's like we there's there's this a constant sort of give and take on on that and that's that's probably why when i say the thing about like trying to talk to a child well you know it's not just the condescending thing it's a matter of like there there you have to come up when you're talking to a kid you want something that's going to be sticky and memorable and something you know stranger danger like there's a reason that rhymes because you want them to remember that like is every stranger danger no but that's your cooking to 180 degrees in exactly. that case but i mean if you're talking to an adult who's a food professional, it seems like it would be really beneficial if the budget is there to help them explain, you know, what the real answer is and how we arrived at that math. Well, and I can tell you, too, for many, many years, if you went to a restaurant inspector and you said sous vide to them, they would throw up their hands. They'd say botulism, no, cannot do this. Do not pass go, not allowed under the regulations, whether it was technically allowed or not. Um, because there probably is a historical reason why there were, and there were outbreaks, and yes, there is a problem with if you take something and you, and you, and you sous vide package it and you partially cook it and then you refrigerate it for a long period of time and your temperature control is not good and there were Clostridium botulinum spores there, I mean, and blah, 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 right? And so it's like, well, okay, but if we really want to have science-based regulations, then we have to look at what the science says. And, and, and yes, you're right, a safe harbor is don't do it. Right. Don't have sous vide because it's dangerous. But yeah, again, given that people want to do it and they're going to do it, let's help them do it safely. And this is we've talked. This is something that Ben and I have talked about before with respect to raw milk. Like the FDA says raw milk is illegal. You cannot sell raw milk in interstate commerce. We are undergoing an experiment in this country where different states are allowing the sale of raw milk. Now, Ben and I are extension professionals. Our job is to help people in our state do things with respect to food safety. So if we just put up our hands and say raw milk is dangerous, don't don't eat raw don't consume raw milk, don't make raw milk, well, are we really serving that target audience or shouldn't we as No, now, now you're not a scientist, you're a hall monitor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And and, and we our hands are kind of tied because the product is legal. So even if someone comes to us and says I'm Look, I'm drinking this illegal raw milk. I understand in North Carolina specifically that I can't buy it, I can't sell it. But I'm coming to you for some advice because I want to do it with the lowest amount of risk. I recognize that there's some risk, right. but I want to do it as safe as possible. 
it puts you know it's it's a weird situation and for me it's like i would like to help you with that i want to make sure you know from a philosophical standpoint someone's coming to me and wants to protect their own public health regardless of what the product is i'm going to try and give them some information recognizing that they're going to drink that product you know that it's already there this reminds me a little bit of uh, a place where i worked that did um legal consulting for expert witnesses, mostly in toxic tort litigations. And one of the things that we would have to, and we work for the defense, we work for the bad guys, especially a lot of the time. But one of the things that we had to face that I think is an interesting distinction is that, um, I'm not going to say scurrilous, but uh, I'm going to say plaintiff's attorneys who wanted to try and make a fast and loose point would often point to, for example, the, the baseline, like the PPM of whatever the substance was, on this site versus the EPA standard and say this exists at, at five to ten times the amount that's allowed by the EPA, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, for this kind of an exposure. And so what we would have to be the karma sucks and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's like so many things about what they're saying here that I, I don't even know which level to begin attacking this at because, first of all, they're talking about oral versus dermal exposure. They're talking about dose versus exposure. Mm-hmm. They're talking about how many hours. You're talking about the trespasser scenario or the worker scenario. And plus, on top of all of that, the EPA's job at the heart of it is to be one to two orders of magnitude into the safe zone. So when you say that something is a suspected or uh, suspected carcinogen or in a, like a, what's the, what's the one that's just below that? The like, you know, a, a, a topic of concern or whatever. Right, right. Like that doesn't mean, that does not mean that this caused that. Oh my God, we're so far from that. But the, that's because we have different goals here. On the one hand, you have an agency whose job it is to try and keep the environment from killing people and itself. And then you've got somebody who's trying to prove that the reason they got lung cancer is because somebody uh, installed caulk in their bathroom or maybe it was the Captain Crunch, or maybe it was the carpeting that was installed, so we'll sue everybody, right? And so that's what we would have to do is go, like, you know, there's a really good chance your small cell carcinoma came from 25 years of smoking and not from caulk. Just because there's more of, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But that's the the kind of science where you got to go, like, let's understand what this is for. Yeah. So as as an, an educated person who is not a scientist... Every time I have a discussion like this, I get very depressed because I, th- I think about the literacy, the science literacy of the general public. Uh, what, how do you, how, what advice would you have as, as a guy who's not a scientist but who clearly understands this stuff and who's clearly thought about it? I wouldn't say that. Well, well, but, but I mean your perspective as somebody that worked for a law firm that did this stuff, I think that is, like I would love to be able to take that perspective and like clone it amongst the people right. in the country. And, and we, we do seem to be in a situation now in this country, if you look at like the food babe and what she's been doing and then this, the science babe sort of counteracting that and, and trying to get people literate and thinking about science and thinking about orders of magnitude and thinking about risk, right? Um, what, what advice would you have for us? Well, I think it's complicated be, in part because I, I am actually aware of how little I know. I can talk out of my ass about stuff from time to time, but I, th- I think one problem is that we do have such a culture of expertise in America where you know, you can learn so much about this one sports team or learn so much about this one animator or whatever it is that you can start to really feel like an expert. And the thing is, when you're getting into hard science that actually involves, you know, lives and complexity and physics and stuff like that, like, you know, there's always the feeling that like, well, you know, I, I studied some of that in school and I've read some Wikipedia articles, but like to have an integrated understanding about how those pieces work together takes a lot more than an afternoon of reading. So I really do rely on other people a lot. It's just, it's sometimes it's difficult to find the other people. I mean, again, something John Syracuse and I, um, I think in episodes that aren't out yet, have been talking about a lot on reconcilable differences is like the importance of self-doubt and starting to realize that 
you know, you have a rational part of your mind that you want to hopefully look to, often to the exclusion of the irrational or emotional part of your mind. But then you also have to have this meta-governor who's making sure that your rational mind is as rational as you think. Because so many errors in thinking and judgment and logic come out of being dead effing sure about something when we're actually potentially dead effing wrong about it. And so I don't know. I mean, like I try, I do try to turn to people who are more expert than me, but it's difficult for me because so much of the things in life I choose to argue by analogy. Analogy is very powerful to me. In science, analogy is not always a great idea. Right. Look at the whole meat situation. Yeah, yeah. Like what, just talking about these different kinds of, it's like for every one of those examples, you go, mm, that's not exactly how that works. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's, not, it's not that it's, and the problem is in this case, assuming that it's safe at 180 degrees could actually be really bad news because what if it hadn't been refrigerated correctly? Just assuming that 180 is a magic bullet is not actually a safe thing. A little learning is a dangerous thing in that situation. So I don't know. I mean, I like try I try I guess I try to just remember how little I know about things and let that be my guide. It, it's that's cool. You know, I think that the confidence around the understanding is is definitely something that I mean, you go to the internet and you find somebody who already agrees with you and then you jump together and everyone is happy. Be, and that breeds the confidence, right? Like that that breeds this You look for somebody confident and persuasive. Right. So I think that that's where a lot of our own confirmation biases get so heavily reinforced is if we can find somebody who mostly says what we want to say and they're confident and persuasive enough, we don't bother looking any further than that. Right. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And the the, the other really, I think, strong issue that happens is this, you know, we just had this, uh, you know, discussion about it's not every, you know, going back to our gun chamber analogy, it's not every gun that has a loaded bullet in the chamber. It's one, one in a hundred, but someone, you know, in the, um, in the carcinogen issue, the, that anecdotal reinforcement of, well, yeah, except I understand that maybe it wasn't the caulking, but my aunt had lung cancer and it was the caulking Mm -hmm. there. That, you know, one, one example and a very confident confirmation bias. Oh, absolutely. Takes, take, that's it. Like it's, it's that's almost, far it's, more powerful than, than, than any kind of logic and persuasion. Yeah. And it, it ends up governing how much of how we think about the world. Well, and, and just to make it even more complicated, there are food safety experts that I can tell you are just wrong about stuff, right? Really? I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not us, but other guys, you know? Like sometimes, say, sometimes we're wrong. Like, well, that, and, right. and, and, I, want, and yeah. I want to know if I'm wrong. With that, yeah. But that's why I like coming to meetings like this, and that's why I like being on, on serving on committees, because that can be so important to sit in a room with the smart people and argue about. Like, that's, like, that's my idea of a great time. Like, what are the kinds of things you people. argue about with people in a room? <sighs> uh, a po- you know, honestly, it's about, it's, it's, it's about management, risk management. It's not... It's not like, what does the science say? Because we all agree what the science says, more or less. And we can argue about some of the finer details. But mm-hmm. given the science says this, like, let's talk about... It's like the, the practical right? implementation like, of that science in yeah. a way that will keep people safe. And yeah. you have to make yeah. a decision so, on so it. So how do, we, how do we craft an intelligent regulation around sous vide in restaurants, right? Given that there's limited uh, uh, knowledge of the inspectors. There's probably even more limited knowledge on the part of the employees. Yeah, the science is all great. And I trust you and Ben. But, boy, right. I sure don't want that 16-year-old or 17-year-old making... You and I, you and I were talking to someone today who has a role in food safety at a very large chain, um, like dozens of thousands of, 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 you know, 
uh, venues right. around the world. And it's like, you know, I just can't even imagine what that person's job is like to have to face. And something you and I were talking about in the hallway out here earlier is like, you think about the people who are most in the weeds with food safety issues. Is it the CEOs? Is it the directors? Is it the vice president? It's the kid that got hired today who may not know how to clean that grill or may not know how to clean that surface, may not know exactly when, how often the ice needs to be replenished in the salad bar. Plus, now you're dealing with a franchisee model with maybe they're getting their turkey from different places. Like, I just can't even imagine administratively having to handle that. What decisions do you make to like create, create policies that will work across dozens of countries? Right, well, right. And, and in fact, with that same company and that same situation, I was working for a company in New Jersey that sells meatballs to that company. And the company's policy on how much the meatballs had to be cooked was crazy. It was resulting in meatballs that were the consistency of hockey pucks. And so I was a, the guy in that situation who had to say, look, we need a, a, a we, you cannot ask this company to cook the meatballs in this way. Yes, they'll be safe, but they'll be inedible. And so let's look at the scientific underpinnings of, of what it is that your policy is based on, and let's try to like put some rational science yeah, around yeah. that and, and, and get it down to something that will result in a saleable product, but at the same time, it also meets certain standards for safety. And so, yeah, to me, that's that's mm -hmm. the fun stuff, right, is arguing about, okay, we know what the science says. Now, what are we going to do about it? And let's make a policy that's intelligent for the, the, the company that's buying it, the company that's selling it, or the, the restaurant inspector, or, or what have you. Now, when you start working with consumers, now it gets a little more complicated because you, you cannot be as nuanced. And you, and you do have to say, well, it's right. going to be an endpoint right. temperature of, of so yeah. thus and such. So. Well, yeah, oh, but we have to be flexible. Um, on a lot of stuff, we, we've uh, we we seem to be uh, coming to an end of no, our. No, come on, uh, you guys. Right. So so, right. so we'll what so what questions do you have for us? Um, yeah, like everything. Um, <laughs> I think I've already asked the questions wait, that I wait, had. Wait, do you want to talk about Sloan now? No, we don't have time for that. Uh, uh, so another please, show. Please, have please, me on. Please. Have me on another another time. All right, we love um, it. questions that I have. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, uh, what, what, <laughs> what, what are one or two um, myths or misunderstandings or uh, misconceptions about food safety that you would like to disabuse people of? Mm. Are there any old saws, old information, dumb things, things that aren't accurate, things that are harmful in a way we didn't expect? Is there anything you wish people, this is a question I always have for people, especially anybody in a special specialty area, like what do you wish people thought or knew or saw differently about the kind of stuff you do? Yeah, one, one thing that comes up again and again and again, and it never goes away, is that people confuse food safety with food spoilage. Like for example, Will I get sick if I leave the milk out of the fridge? No, you will not get sick if you leave the milk out of the fridge because that milk has been pasteurized and it contains virtually, a, 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 there's a virtual certainty there are no pathogens in that milk. Should you refrigerate your milk? Hell yes, it's a great idea if you want to have good tasting milk, but the bacteria that are left in milk at the end of the pasteurization process are spoilage organisms. They will make the milk smell nasty, but, but refrigeration is not necessary for the safety of milk. It's necessary for the shelf life of milk. So the bacteria that cause milk uh, to spoil God, I'm so are not... confused. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm one of those people. I needed to hear this. 
but here's the thing. Don't stop refrigerating your milk. Don't stop being indignant when the, 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 the company that delivers your milk to your fancy San Francisco apartment. Um, 60 degrees. Yeah, 60 that's, that's inexcusable. Yeah. That's that's not acceptable. What but, about ketchup? Do I have to keep it in the refrigerator? Well, it, so that's that's where I was going to go. Ketchup and mustard and mayonnaise. It, it's, the, it's the exact same thing. So ketchup, mustard. Do I have mayonnaise. to refrigerate after opening, as it says? I, what things do I refrigerate after opening? Well, I think I think that the, the labels that I like are the ones that say refrigerate after opening for quality. Oh, yeah. I like that. Okay, which tells you why you're doing it. It tells you what to do, and it tells you why you're doing it. it so ketchup's a really good, good one. It's got vinegar. It should yeah. be fine. And and it and it is. And the household that I grew up in, ketchup never ever once. Never. Never. Ever what about butter? Were you a refrigerated butter family? Butter on the on the counter. What? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you when I, I when I first met the people who don't refrigerate their butter, I thought it was extremely confusing and yeah. dangerous, especially in Florida. And now my my wife and I are kind of at war, but she leaves the butter out, I put the butter in because I'm a refrigerated butter guy. Yeah. So. Now is that a spoilage issue? It's got. It's got. Yes. It's got well, it's it's complicated because there could be bacteria that cause. Should spoilage, I sous vide the butter? You, you could should. try. Okay, I could do it yeah, at 129 sous-vide. degrees. Yeah, yeah. It will be sous vide butter. It, it That's will my be new stripper amazing. name. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> put a little bit of time in there. If you know what I mean. Yeah, that's. Uh, put, put some time show. into her. Yeah. Anyway, but but the issue with butter is more complicated because there are bacteria <laughs> that can grow in butter. Yes, and there okay. might be some there. Delicious Again, bacteria. Spo- spoilage, spoilage bacteria. But butter also can grow can go rancid because it's got oil in it. So uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. And and again, I I had wonderful some wonderful summers with a college roommate. His family was a not butter refrigerating family. Also. That family ate a buttload of butter. And so, yeah, they could keep it out, and it would be gone mm, in a couple of days. They go through it days. faster. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So if you are a, a, a delicate, slight, slow butter eater, mm. no, put it I in I eat the fridge. crap out of some yeah, butter. So yeah, leave it out. Leave it leave out. out, yeah. Yeah, all right. Yogurt. Yogurt, yogurt in the fridge. What? Yogurt in the fridge. How long How long does it stay there for? Forever. Forever. Oh. Forever. I mean, well, it's, sometimes my yogurt gets moldy. It's it, spoil, and, and right. that I throw away. Yeah, but we're talking again. This is the myth between spoilage and pathogens. We're, See, our, I'm t- that's totally new to me. Totally new to me. What is spoilage? It tastes bad. It yeah, yeah, but what bad. causes it? Bacteria. Yeah. Okay. Molds. Are pathogens different from bacteria. Pathogens are a kind of bacteria. Mm. So, so I like to are explain. We're doing diagrams. So we're all so, making gang signs yeah. at each other right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. So two circles yeah. love so, each other very so. much. <laughs> East side. Yeah. <laughs> pathogens. So, and this so is the people. <laughs> there are there are bacteria that cause us to become sick, and there are bacteria that cause food to spoil, and they are not necessarily the same, although there are some in the middle of that overlapping Venn diagram, right? Okay, I'm getting that. This is this is all new to me. I I, I feel like, I'm th- trying to think of like, I was about to say, it's, it's a shame we don't learn this stuff in school, and I'm trying to think where I might have learned it. Maybe health class in like junior high school, but you know what I mainly, my, my when I think of my knowledge of food protective things i mostly think of psas of like of like the odd couple when uh, uh feel like there's an odd couple one about salmonella i remember from my youth about don't leave your groceries out on the uh on the counter was salmonella a big problem in the 70s because i feel like it suddenly came up as a thing we needed to work on so here's the thing if you if you had a advice for a young food safety scientist 
30 years ago, uh-huh. it would be study salmonella. If you had advice for a young food safety scientist today, it would be salmonella, because guess what? We still have salmonella. Now, we also have a boatload of other microorganisms as well. So, uh, But yeah, salmonella was a thing. Back when there were like five foodborne pathogens, that's back before Ben was born, yep. um, and I hmm. was young. Um, uh, uh, but but yeah, it's still a problem today. Why are there more than there now than there were then? We, we got really good at looking for them. And we oh, started, it's and we, a measuring issue. Yeah, and we started discovering that things that we, we knew people were getting sick, we didn't know what was causing it. And then when we started looking and finding what was causing it, it was a totally different thing than we had seen before. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and in fact, still today, if you go to the CDC statistics mm-hmm. and you look at uh, outbreaks where there is a pathogen identified, it's still more than half we never identify the pathogen. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the myth. That was that's my next myth. Is yeah, it's like perfect, perfect <sighs> myth number two. Number two, um, that we don't know most of the stuff about food safety. Like all the three thousand people that are here, we wow. are still at the infancy of trying to figure out what's causing a lot of illnesses. We know we know drastically more than we did twenty years ago. Food has likely never been safer. We put so much more money into keeping things safe, mm-hmm. but we still have estimated 48 million people get sick every year. Jeez, and Louise, in really? In the U.S. And wow. That, and that estimation is based on, um, you know, real fancy algorithms and calculations that if we plug the surveillance data that we had 10, 15 years ago into mm-hmm. it, we would still estimate 48 million people got sick 15 years ago and then same today. So... And it changes because, yes, we reduced things like E. coli mm-hmm. in ground beef. We know that that's gone down. But we've started to see listeria in things like ice cream and in frozen kale, in stuff that we didn't even think was going to have listeria. I thought listeria was like classically like cold cuts and stuff like that. Yes. But one yep. of the, when my wife was ill uh, uh, not too long ago, one of the, the suspects was things like, I want to say like blueberries or something like that? It was probably... Or strawberries? Uh, I think on the timeline, it probably would have been uh, um, frozen something, maybe like smooth, yeah, frozen blueberries that were in, in smoothies. Isn't that crazy? Year. Yeah. But, but there's a great example of 10 years ago, no one's looking for listeria in, in frozen blueberries right. from a public health standpoint. But all of a sudden, we see more stuff, and so that changes our, our whole perception. You know, it used to be um, myth number three. Number three. It used to be chicken and salmonella that made people sick. And then all of a sudden, we started looking in the mid-'90s for salmonella in tomatoes and fresh produce. And, whoa, there's salmonella in fresh produce, too. And salmonella in peanut butter? Peanut butter, yeah. Well, and then we were talking about this today. Well, you, you tutored out that link about the the guy who shipped all the peanuts with yeah. salmonella um, in them. Yep. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. I yep. did not know I, uh, peanut could get salmonella. It's yep. Tyler. And, and, and that... <laughs> And that son of a bitch is in jail now. Yeah. So they want to get a life sentence. Recommended for life sentence. Yeah. yeah. That's unbelievable. It is. Yeah. And and it was so. But that I mean, for in in our little world, what what he did and what came out in their court documents was just so egregious. Like, yeah, there's salmonella in that peanut butter. We know right. about it. Send it out. I remember first hearing about the distinction. Now this is legally accurate, but the the distinction between like you get manslaughter, homicide, and murder. Manslaughter is. You had a role in killing somebody without meaning to. You know, homicide is you killed somebody without malice of forethought. And, and murder is like you made sure you canceled other appointments to get that person good and killed ahead of time. And that sounds like talking about malice. The whole idea that you would knowingly have this pattern of continuing to do that, it's so dark. It's, it's crazy. 
and, and you know, and one of the things that we, we, we also regularly talk about on the podcast is, like, we know people in the food industry, and we know people in government, we know people in academia, and I would say, like, 99.99% of them are good people. They're doing as, working as hard as they can, doing good work. And then you have people like this jackass from uh, Peanut Corporation of America who just it puts it makes a bad name for everybody. And and for the most part, well, not, not like peanuts are, are that popular of a thing because of the allergies and stuff. Anyway, nowadays he makes things worse. Now you go like, oh my yeah, god, yeah. it kills Seven people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was like nine deaths. And oh my goodness, sick. that's yeah. awful. It is. And it let's, is. But let's contrast that with the the Jensen Brothers uh, farm in Colorado who who sadly killed more people than that. Thirty. Uh, from cantaloupes that had listeria in them, but these were guys that were, they were misinformed, and they were, tr- they, 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 they basically, Merlin, you'll find this maybe interesting, they built a machine for washing their cantaloupes, trying to get the dirt off, but they ended up building a machine that would inoculate Collected those cantaloupes dirt. with listeria. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and ended up making... The calls coming from inside the cantaloupe. Yeah, exactly. That's miserable. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, you know, but, that, that is, you know, we go back Really, a decade, listeria in in cantaloupes isn't something that we would even like. Right. We, we, if you had a bunch of food safety professionals sitting around a table, say, "Is there listeria in cantaloupes?" We'd all say, "Yes, no, a hundred percent." Do people get sick from it? No. Oh, I see what yeah. you're saying. Like it, you're it's saying. there. It's in. It's it's common in soil. It's in the packing facilities. It's there. Something different happened in this outbreak that ended up causing these wow. these deaths. But you know, as the investigation went on, there was weird stuff that was going on in, in, in the knowledge side of things in, in the business and what they were doing. Yeah. And, and again, to talk about it's complicated, like salmonella, one cell can kill you. Yeah. Listeria, um, you probably need a lot more, right? But that doesn't mean that, that any amount is safe. Uh, and so, again, it, it gets complicated. You guys are blowing my mind. You're so, blowing my mind, Grace. You're welcome. That's our job. Any more uh, mis- misconceptions? Uh, oh, well, so one more. I, I'm literally looking at a PowerPoint yeah. that I have called Myth or Fact. Myth or Fact. Myth or Fact. Number from, five. From June 7th, 2013. 13. It's way back in time. Time. Um, so we, we talked about temperature, and we didn't really get to the one big sort of myth on color, blood, temperature, all those things are separate. Like, so hmm. uh, an undercooked hamburger to us to Don and I and maybe a bunch of other food safety people is is a hamburger that was cooked below 155 for 15 seconds or whatever magical time temperature but an undercooked hamburger to someone else might be a medium rare hamburger and medium rare doesn't have a temperature like there isn't even you know a thin burger that's cooked to medium rare versus a thick burger that's cooked to medium rare hmm. that's different time temperature combinations like it's a quality attribute that really has no safety and so can't look at it mm-hmm. you can't look if the juices are running clear um, the you know the um, the moisture content all that stuff it's their attributes of the food that have no they're not an indicator of the safety of the food. And, and in fact, and I had this happen, I had a, my graduate students over for a, a cookout the other day. And so there's two things that go on with cooked burgers. And one is that a burger can still be pink, but be cooked to 155 or and be safe. But there's a, a thing called persistent pink that has to do with the proteins and the muscles and chemistry and a lot of complicated stuff. And you can also have burgers that will prematurely turn brown 
Oh, that may not even be right. oh. so. So color, bottom line, color in cooked burgers not a reliable indicator of doneness. And I and I, yeah. I saw this for myself. I couldn't believe it. It's like I had the thermocouple in there. I knew it was cooked. I knew it was fine. It was overcooked, and they were all coming out pink. pink. Yeah, and, so weird. And poultry, same thing. I mean, chicken, turkey, um, those those temperature temperature and color. So like like, do, like for example, uh, is the juice running clear? That is a rule of thumb. Total BS. Really? Total BS. <gasps> yeah. It's and, total BS. Yeah. And, and it's one that, that in the food safety world would, and this is the like arrogance of our world, right, I think, <laughs> is that we would look at it and go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they've got it so wrong. But that is that I have to tell you, uh, that is folk wisdom that I have internalized. If it, the juices run clear. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's the, I, you know, what, what I think we try and do with the program stuff and all of our work is about, okay, well, we have to recognize that that is an ingrained, culturally acceptable indicator. So how do we work within that to tell people, mm, yeah, it's not quite the same. And it would be almost like doing science. epidemiology where you've got to go and, like, start out with what people think and believe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, what, and I'm not, I'm not yeah. just saying vac- vaccinations, but anything with regard to, like, and I've read things about this. Uh, maybe I've got like a Jared Diamond on the brain thing, but the way of dealing with people and how they start to think about things like what indicates the safety of water. Like there's all kinds of weird folk wisdom about these things that's completely out of whack because those messages and that shortcutting way of explaining information to people in a way that's sticky ends up really getting in the way of the real truth. Yeah, and trichinosis the, in pork, that yeah. is like the perfect example of how sticky that message was for four generations. Like, you know, go back, Hundred years when it was when there was a lot of it, and my grandmother got a message saying, "If you don't cook your pork, you're going to cough up worms." Oh, I'm definitely. I don't want that. Yeah, I'm definitely going to cook my pork. So she taught my mom to cook her pork so she doesn't cough up worms. Except by the time my mom was cooking and a primary meal preparer, there was no trichinosis in the in the meat. And then my mom passed that on to me and said, "Don't overcook your pork because Grandma said that you're going to get worms." And now we're like. 40 years past the time when that was a really good risk management and it's cultural lore, but it's not. That's so interesting. I had to look yeah. up uh, while we were on vacation with the family. I had to go and look up the should you wait half an hour after eating to go swimming. <laughs> right. And I had this, but, but like. What was the answer? Well, here's the answer. It's like I, but I, I wanted to pause and enjoy the moment where I sat with that for a minute and went, wait a minute. I found myself saying that my daughter had to wait half an hour. And then, then the part of my, there's a part of my brain that goes, hang on. There is no way that is actually true. And it, I never stopped until today at the age of 48 to really think about it. I went and looked it up. It's total BS. Yeah. But the, isn't the, there a little part of you that said, but I had to wait when I was a kid. I'm and so you, yeah, just to be safe, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently it turns out part of the thing of it is that, you know, there's always the chance that you could get a, a cramp of some kind when you're swimming. It's just that, you know, the feeling was that this will exacerbate it. But no, it's total BS. Snopes, yeah. Snopes, Snopes, Snopes. Just go to Snopes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. It's, but... So, I mean, just to bring it back to, to food and what we do and what we try to do with the, the podcast is that there are more, there's so much more access to data to those types of questions that our world has not caught up to, to responding to it. Like, hmm. our default is just cook it to 160, not let's talk about all the parameters that right. really go into that. And I think it's, I, th- I think consumers are are pushing us to do a better job at that because people are into things like sous vide or cooking in a dishwasher or we also want to be careful that we don't always let the stickiest message win whether that's with urban myths or or pseudoscience or real science is that you have to be careful because like people 
will believe and pass along these things. And if there's not a real you know, grounding in reality, you're going to be fighting. Again, look at trichinosis, I guess, is a great example. Mm -hmm. Like, I had no idea. Trichinosis is my file card, my mental file card for be careful about pork because of. Yep. And now you're telling me that hasn't been an issue since I was probably a, a little kid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And but it's but it's so strong. It's such I've learned. A great I've learned today. I've learned and I've grown. <laughs> well, we, we, and as have we. I, I've learned things about where and where not to put my meat. How to probe. How to probe. <laughs> how, how, how to check for the level of clear liquid. Uh, Clostridium perfringensing. Hey guys, a, thank you for having me on today. <laughs> oh, Marilyn, it, is, it has been an absolute blast. Thank you. Uh, That's a wrap. Yeah.